Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 61 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. And I have a special guest episode today. In this episode, I talk with Scott Snibby, the creator and host of the podcast, A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Scott is a pioneering interactive artist and augmented reality entrepreneur and the host of the meditation podcast, A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. He is a 20-year student of Tibetan Buddhism, whose teachers include Geshe Nagwan Dakpa, Chodan Rinpoche, Venerable Rene Fwesi, Lama Zopo Rinpoche, Gyomed Kenser Rinpoche Labseng Jampa, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Inspired by his teachers, he leads meditations that infuse the pure lineage of the great Buddhist masters with science, humor, and the realities of the modern world. Over the course of a career as a digital artist and entrepreneur, Snibby has created best-selling art, music, and social apps, and collaborated with musicians and film, filmmakers, including Bjork, James Cameron, and Philip Glass. His interactive exhibits have been collected by both science and art museums, including the Whitney Museum of American Art and New York's Museum of Modern Art. Listen in as two podcasters and longtime Buddhist practitioners explore our mutual confidence in the path of Dharma and how we view how Buddhism fits in today's world and how we both agree that it can truly make all beings happier. I discovered Scott's podcast and immediately invited him for a conversation, and we decided that we could talk together for days, probably, um, but uh, trying to keep it within the realm of a, of a uh, normal-sized podcast, um, I invited him for a conversation, and that conversation with Scott starts now. Well, Scott... Thank you so much for joining us on the Everyday Buddhism podcast. Um, it's uh, it's it's fun for me to have you on this podcast episode because number one, I just discovered your podcast, or I guess I just discovered you, <laughs> although you've been existing for a while. Um, I discovered your podcast when I was looking around for another podcast, like I need another one to listen to, like a hole in the head. But I was. I was scrolling through my app and, and, you know, always looking at Buddhism and related subjects and spirituality and philosophy and psychology and boom, it popped up and I had never seen it before yet. You've been around since the early last year. So it, it, it was, uh, I, I was like, Whoa, a, a new podcast, by the way, it's, I said it at the intro, but it's a skeptic's path to enlightenment. And uh, I immediately reached out to you and said, would you like to be a guest? And we uh, hooked up for a little pre-conversation last week. And I think both of us felt like we could talk our each other's ears off. Um, and so that's what we're going to do here today, at least for a while, uh, within the confines of a podcast episode format. So thank you. 
Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and really appreciate the invitation and your wonderful podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, just as a, a, a way to kick it off is um, Scott's podcast is very interesting. He, uh, I hope you will all go add it to your um, subscribe list as, after we're done here, but he has, he covers everything from um, mindfulness and meditation and to compassion and emptiness and bodhicitta and on to artificial intelligence and Bitcoin. And <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, I guess you could call it a far reaching uh, a, a podcast, but, it, and he also has some really excellent guests. He's uh his ability to grab big names is, is exciting. Um, and uh, it, it'll be enjoyable to everybody. So that's in a nutshell, kind of what I want to say about your podcast, but I want you to say, why did you start this podcast? We'll go into, I think I'm going to break it down word by word, like uh, uh, skeptic path enlightenment. I think that might be fun to try that as a format, but, you know, just from a, from a personal level, why did you start this podcast? So I've been a practicing Tibetan Buddhist for, uh, 20 something years. And I got invited to start teaching meditation about 14 years ago. And in teaching those sessions, we go through a series of meditations that are called the Lam Rim uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, which is a, a specific order of the Buddhist topics that is um, supposed to be very effective in training your mind and bringing out all of your best qualities. And so I would lead these classes and I tend to naturally gravitate to certain topics that were kind of better for beginners or people that didn't believe in any of the um, I guess the, the super normal or, or someone, some people might say supernatural aspects of Buddhism. Um, like I was meditating on love and compassion a lot. And I got scolded actually by my friend who is the uh, leading the center. And she said, no, you have to do all the topics. So I said, okay, <laughs> we'll start doing all of the, all the different topics, which break down into, there's different ways of numbering them, maybe, you know, 12 to 14 topics. And so then when I started trying to be more authentic to this sequence for beginners, I found there were some really big barriers because even though we were saying this class was open to everybody, open to beginners, no belief necessary, sometimes in the very first class, the way you teach it traditionally, you'd get this triple whammy of belief, of believing in past and future lives, believing in karma and believing in other realms. You know, So for example, the first topic in the sequence is the precious human uh, life or rebirth. And so often in the first sentence, you say, oh, for beginningless lifetimes, I've been reborn in awful places and realms. I've mostly been a turtle and a ghost and, <laughs> you know, many other and, and worse. And finally, I have this, due to the power of this invisible force called karma, I have this lucky rebirth where I have these great mental faculties and a great um, chance to practice um, the Dharma. So I better take advantage of that. So that I found was a little alienating <laughs> for your average person. There were three big things that we can't validate with science today. And so over time, I started to make more and more notes of how you could adapt the Lam Rim to a completely secular form. It seemed to me there was 
not that much you'd have to um, change or, or bear off from in order to get the huge benefit of the meditation because the type of meditation you do in the Lamrim is substantially analytical meditation. So it's a meditation where you, you fill your mind with thoughts and feelings and emotions. And I found that that type of meditation, analytical meditation was really, really good for at least the kind of people who would come into a city center you know, in, in America, like highly educated, analytical, intelligent. Um, so with a little bit of tweaks so that people didn't hit this red, you know, red line of belief, something they couldn't validate scientifically, um, I felt like you could make all the topics beneficial. And so I worked on this for about seven years, just taking notes. I talked to my teachers. This isn't just my idea. His Holiness the Dalai Lama wrote the book Beyond Religion, uh, which yes, encourages right. us to do this, um, As and my teachers were encouraging. And so two years ago, I finally found the time and the motivation, You know, all the conditions came together um, to launch this idea as a podcast. And so we did an introduction, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, everything is very long. So our introduction, I think, was 35 episodes or something like that, which introduces people to this sequence. Yeah, that's a, I, I, that was one of the things that struck me personally, because I, uh, as most of my podcast listeners know from my uh, previous references, is I've, I was a long-term Tibetan practitioner, too. 20 plus years myself. Um, and uh, I, I, even though I, pre, I, I became a uh, lay minister and a sensei in another tradition in a Mahayana, a Japanese Mahayana tradition, Tibetan Buddhism is still my, I would call it my home ground, right? It's where mm -hmm. I go. It's, mm -hmm. it, it, it feels very comfortable return there. I think it's uh, um, when I need to figure something out for myself, I always pull out one of my Tibetan texts, yeah. you know, to, 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 to do that. So, but what I was struck by was the fact that you were using the Lam Rim, um, which is, which is a concept that uh, I have found that outside of um, a few schools of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, mostly Galup, you know, um, mm -hmm. the, the Lam Rim is not anything anybody even knows about, you know, it's there or they've never really even heard much about it. And it's um, and to me, it was always the most logical. Uh, and you're right. The, 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 uh, the way, the way in which uh, a logical way in which would appeal to an average Western or American audience. Um, and the other thing that uh, I was struck by was your focus on analytical meditation, which is also um, primarily found, I think, in the Galut tradition, I could be wrong. And um, that analytical meditation, you know, when I've brought it up to my sangha, they're, they're, they're like, what, what's that? What are you talking about? Analytical meditation. And yet it is, I think, the most easy and comfortable way to present meditation to, again, another, a Western or uh, American audience who tend, I mean, analysis, you know, that's the kind of, that's kind of it for, for, for our minds, the way we were brought up is like, you know, it's kind of what makes people skeptics too, but we'll go, we'll go there later. But um, so that's what struck me. And I, and I think you do that beautifully in your podcast. Um, and did you, I, I know you were, you were, you were asked to teach meditation. Um, but then you, you created the podcast and 
I know the name is skeptics, but was that really your focus? Like that, was that what, like your, this is really what you wanted to do? I mean, why skeptics, right? And why not uh, um, for rationalists or, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? What was, yeah. what was the, what was the, what was the concept behind it? Well, well, first of all, if you're a real true believer of, you know, in Buddhism and some of the, like you say, the supernatural or supernormal elements of Buddhism, then there are much better teachers than me <laughs> I think, <laughs> to learn Buddhism from. There's ex you can go watch the Dalai Lama, yeah. you know, a few yeah. times a week now, and many other extremely great teachers. So, I didn't think there's a huge benefit for like another a kind of <laughs> mediocre Tibetan Buddhist teacher <laughs> in the world. But I actually do think I'm a pretty great um, sort of uh, everyday teacher. Not not even really a teacher, but more of like a teaching assistant. Like the person who took the class, you know, the, the semester before and now can help other people along. Um, but the reason I use the word skeptics is that those are the people. They're like my friends. I'm surrounded by these people besides my, you know, Sangha members <laughs> in Tibetan Buddhism. If I look at my friends, my colleagues, the people I encounter everyday life, even my wife and, and, and family members, um, I've gone through life with these people and some of them for 20, 25 years. And they kept asking me. I mean, first of all, there's people who are sincerely looking for ways to live a meaningful, happy life. Right. Bottom line. And then they, they see my example. And sometimes they say, oh, you know, you're into Buddhism. For a lot of people, I'm the only spiritual person they know. A lot of my friends have asked me to, you know, marry them and things like that. So not, not get married to them, but <laughs> to, no, I to, hear you. to yeah. officiate in their marriage. Yeah, that's right. um, so I, a lot of this I just did for my friends and, and people like them because I felt like people have a very rational point of view that what, what, why should I believe anything beyond what science tells me? When I look at people who believe things beyond science, beyond rationality, there's a lot of awful examples, you know, including, you know, smashing a plane into the World Trade Center because you believe you're going to be reborn in a, a, a heaven with, vir with a bunch of virgins. Right. So right. I think people are totally reasonable in drawing that line really hard and saying, you know, science would say, of course, we don't know all, of, we don't even know most of reality. But to draw to draw that line at what we currently understand about reality and try from science and psychological perspective, and then pull in the wisdom of Buddhism, um, but grounded in without having to take the recourse of believing something we can't substantiate right now. And I say this as someone without saying what I personally believe in, which may or may we, we may or may not get to, that's actually not important, but it's more for the benefit of people who, really can't believe anything beyond what they've rationally learned uh, from science, from psychology and from textbooks and, and so on. So that's the, that's the point of skeptics. So it's not, so there's a couple of different, there's also cynics, right? Yes, a, a cynic right. is a person who actually just rejects things without even thinking about them or considering them. So that's not the audience. It's not a cynic's path to enlightenment, <laughs> right? Um, it sounds like a mutually exclusive concept. Um, yeah, but, but a rational skeptic. There's a, there's a, there's right, a concept right. of a rational skeptic who is someone who is curious. I think curiosity is really important but also applies their like critical um, wisdom and insight. Um, and that's what's so neat about the origins of this path and the intersection. Because if you look at the origins of, um, you know, the Mahayana Buddhism in this particular tradition that goes back to like Nagarjuna and the, um, 
Nalanda, especially the Nalanda monastery in India. Right, right, right. In in as you look at all the different strands of Buddhism, which I'm not an expert in, but this particular one, you know, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, is extremely analytical and critical, and invites you to take that the Buddha's advice to not believe anything on faith alone, but to really test it and analyze it yourself, including using all the modern methods and new information that comes to light. That is the grounding of Tibetan Buddhism is in that Nalanda tradition of um, critical inquiry, even debate, right? Debate is greatly encouraged in this tradition. So I thought it was a nice mixture, you know, that Nalanda tradition that I learned through Tibetan Buddhism with um, modern rational skepticism. It is absolutely. And, and it is, that's, just as a uh, off offside comment is that that was where I practiced too in that tradition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's where I studied. I also practiced in the uh, Drikun Kagyu tradition, but I studied the most in the Kagyu tradition. So, oh the- yeah. In terms of the precision of the text, right. If you want to go and get, you know, very precise um, textual information and um, the study the, of the scriptures and the analysis of the scriptures, it's such an incredible fount of wisdom. Yes, that that it is. They 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 that tradition has has the uh, the depth, and you could go forever if if you if you had the time and life, the span of life and all, all of that. Um, I just want to make an offside comment to the, all those skeptics out there. You mentioned Nagarjuna, and as we know. Uh, Nargajuna, um, his name comes from uh, how he received the wisdom of his teachings, which was accordingly from dragons. So if uh, if if we <laughs> we could lose a few skeptics right there, but uh, I I like to point these things out for just. For, for like a random interest, you know, um, you don't have to, you mean, Narcajuna's uh, writings, and, and I, I study them a lot, are, are there, there couldn't be a skeptic in the world who could poo-poo the logic behind Narcajuna's writings. So whether he got them from dragons or not is, an, is another story. Um. Yeah, you know, I mean, I heard Robert Thurman recently say, you know, perhaps the greatest philosopher that ever lived, you know, is Nagarjuna, like the precision of his writing on the nature of reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and, and I agree. Um, uh, Did you, I think we, I'll speak for myself. I, I started as a somewhat of a skeptic and, and, yeah, and, and you talked about your friends and family members as skeptics, but did you start as a skeptic as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was, so my brother became a Tibetan Buddhist before me and he was a skate, he's a skate punk, a photojournalist, you know, all these like <laughs> really kind of active, aggressive um, uh, activities. And I was pretty nervous when he became a Buddhist because I thought, I don't, I have no idea where I got this idea. And maybe other people have this misconception too. But I thought that becoming a Buddhist basically meant losing your personality, that you kind of <laughs> give up yourself. I think that's all I knew about it is you give up yourself. And I thought, if you give up yourself, what's left? You'll be so boring. So I was kind of worried my brother was going to become really boring. Uh, but I watched him for four years and he didn't become boring. He actually, he had all the same humor and, and creativity, but he was kinder and gentler and, and open and he's a very deep practitioner. So um, yeah, that's how I got into Buddhism was um, 
he he kept sending me books for four years, including by His <laughs> Holiness. And I'll tell you something, I did not understand them. I really found I get you. Buddhism very hard to understand. Um, his Dalai Lama's books, I mean, and it is hard to understand, honestly, I think. Um, but finally, when he sent me some Thich Nhat Hanh books and I read, you know, the Dalai Lama's autobiography, it started to make a little bit of sense, you know, but I remember reading Thich Nhat Hanh and trying then being curious about meditation and try to sit on my bed and, you know, nothing happens. You need, you need a really excellent instructor to, to learn meditation. But here's what happened is that I invited my brother to go see the Dalai Lama in Los Angeles. I saw the Dalai Lama was coming. So I said, and, and I love my brother, we're good friends. So I said, I'll take you, I'll buy your ticket. I'll buy your plane ticket. We'll spend five days together. I'm patient. I was a lot more patient then than I am now, actually. I said, I'm patient. I can sit through anything. I'll sit through these five days of teachings. And at, at worst, we'll have a great time hanging out in LA together. But what happened was, and I was the skeptic going there. What happened was the minute I saw the Dalai Lama, I just wanted what he was having. You know, I saw his qualities. I'd read his, I'd read his biography. I knew he essentially went through a Holocaust. Like I come from a Jewish background also, you know, and I have, mm -hmm. my relatives died in the Holocaust and concentration mm -hmm. camps, but you know, a portion of the, like the, the reaction of that culture was to get, you know, militarized and, and aggressive. And that yet the Tibetans went through the same thing, had the opposite approach of being so gentle. You know, the Dalai Lama is like, even if we harm one Chinese soldier, then it makes, you know, a hundred other enemies. So, you know, the most logical approach is to be kind and patient, even, even through like extreme aggression and, and murder. Even. So that blew my mind. And I just thought I want those qualities. And, and I did not believe in rebirth. I did not believe in past and future lives, karma, any of that. But I just, I felt like, these paths are rare. I've, I searched around in life and it just, it seemed like this would work. It worked on the Dalai Lama. I saw how it was working on my brother and other people. And I just committed to studying it, even though I couldn't accept or even understand most of it. I just committed to studying it. And I studied pretty deeply for, for a long time with, you know, great teachers, Tibetan teachers and Western teachers. That That's a great story. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I talk a lot with, uh, uh, on my podcast and with my sangha talking about, um, you know, people get hung up on the word faith, you know, that, hmm. that the, the word faith is, is used in Buddhism as well. And then, it, it, and, and people like, uh, you know, uh, people come, I think a lot of people come in my experience from teaching at, at the center I taught at like years ago. And now virtually uh, a lot of people come to Buddhism deeply spiritually wounded by another tradition. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and then, and then if there's any like baggage that kind of comes through with words like faith and, you know, um, then, then they sort of like run screaming. Um, and, and the interesting thing it, that I always say, and you, your story just exemplified completely is to, to to take up Buddhism or any path of, of you could call it a path of self-development, but I don't really like to think of Buddhism as just self-development. I find it's kind of cheapens it a little bit in my mind. It's just the way I look at it. Um, anyway, it's somebody, it's somebody that is a, is a, uh, somebody that exemplifies something to you that you would like to have. It's like, uh, well, there's, there's this text in the, um, 
in the three Pure Land Sutras, in the larger sutra. Um, and there's this little part of the text. It's called the Senbutsuge or the Tenbutsuge in uh, Japanese. And it talks about how uh, when this, this guy, uh, this, this follower, this student, um, uh, uh, saw the Buddha, he, he said his face was brighter than the sun and lit the room and brighter than the sun. And he immediately vowed that he had to have that. Okay. So um, I, I think the parallel is obvious from your story, but that's the kind of thing that I think happens is Buddhism to take up the path of Buddhism you can call it faith if you want, but you have to have a certain level of confidence based on a, a respect or an admiration um, of someone else you admire. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then you say, well, like you said, I want what they, what they have. I had a very similar uh, experience. Um, uh, I, I started studying Buddhism in the, in, in the Galoop tradition you know, I was a bookstand Buddhist for many years, even into my you know, high school, you know, I, you know, I had, you know, Ram Das and uh, Suzuki and I, and I had everybody on my, uh, my, my nightstand, but, you know, it was just a, as a, it was just fascinating. I was also studying Hinduism and Krishna and anything to get me out of my you know, late teen, early 20 angst, and um, nothing seemed to click. But then I went to see uh, uh, the Dalai Lama's monks. We have a, uh, Ithaca is here. Mm -hmm. uh, Namgal is right around the corner from us. So um, there was, uh, they did the Kala Chakra at the, uh, at the uh, uh, art museum. And uh there's something happened to me, which is why I have the collar chakra uh, uh, hanging behind me, um, is something clicked. Uh, something happened and it wasn't even a person necessarily, although there were monks doing the sand, um, but there, there, something clicked and made a connection to me. And then I started pursuing it more deeply and deeply and deeply. And that's how I connected. But that was when I started meeting all these people who, whose, whose faces shone like the sun. Right. Mm. And then that, that was, that was, that was it. And, you know, you can call it confidence. And I think a lot of us, you know, like in, in, in like, like any kind of sport, a high school sport, you may have a, a, a basketball coach and he, he, he means the world to you and, and you want to be like him. And, and, and therefore that's confidence or it's faith. If, if you want to say such a thing. So, you know, there's a lot of ways, like you said, to translate more, you know, esoteric, uh, you know, supernatural concepts to what we feel and experience and deal with every day. Yeah, your point about faith is very good. And sometimes they say devotion. I really like the term respect. I think it's I think it's very it's a very very good term that, and it's something I think we think less and less. Our our culture has obviously gotten very very divisive, and it's so much about criticism. Like yeah. everybody deserves your criticism, and that's how the news media works too, which is and plays a very important function. Um, but sometimes we like miss out on 
what's really important also is to look at people's good qualities. And when you meet someone with so many good quality, like I think for most of us, our, our friends and the people we admire have more good qualities than bad, you know, at least as we see them. And um, yeah, that's, what's amazing when you meet a great teacher. So for, I mean, I, I'm lucky to have, I don't, there's, I list them out every morning in my mind, you know, 17 more teachers, but um, Venerable Sangi Kadro or Kathleen McDonald, for example, is one of my teachers. Um, and yeah, when you meet a person like that, there's just, there's just an incredible sense of presence and um, groundedness and, and love and attention too. you know, the, the, just, that's one of the greatest aspects of these great Buddhist teachers is they give you a hundred percent attention oh, Who yeah. in your life ever gives you a hundred percent attention. Sometimes, you know, if you're making love or something like, <laughs> but right. even then sometimes people are distracted, but right. it's, it's really nice when, um, I mean, when you're watching Netflix, unfortunately that's kind of it, right? You get a hundred percent of your attention to Netflix, sometimes to podcasts, which is good. But um, when a person gives you 100% of your attention, someone once said that's the greatest gift someone can give you is their attention. And in some ways, that's, that's what the teacher does. But yeah, I do think you, need, you do need that example. But it doesn't have to be that extreme. It can even, um, like, you know, Dan Harris is a, good, is a good example where he's always oh, very yeah, self-deprecating. He's, he's like, you know, this, this can make you less of a, you know, a-hole, he calls it. Right. He wears all the time. But um, and then people are very, very inspired by him and the, and the effect that, you know, meditation has had on his life. So, yeah, I think we all need some kind of example, but it can be as simple as, you know, a friend who's benefited. It is amazing when you find a really authentic teacher though, but it's, it's not easy. No, it's not easy. And it's not, it's not the way life is going now. It's not the light way life will go. I don't think, I think we're getting more and more removed from that ability to find a teacher. People like you who live on the West coast, um, I don't know where exactly you live. Yeah. In Berkeley, there's a in lot Berkeley. of teachers here. Yeah. This well, is so yeah. Around. Yeah. But, but most of the, you know, most of the people that I know that I'm talking to live nowhere near number one, a Dharma center. So therefore, yeah. and if they do, they're less likely to, to have, have like, it might be more like a community meditation center or something sure. less likely sure to me. So, which was one of, one of my reasons for starting my podcast was that sort of thing, that sort of, um, you know, missing out kind of thing on just, just a, having a, like you say, I don't, you don't consider yourself a teacher or even, a te or even a teacher's assistant. Um, that's what the word, you know, we were inducted as senseis in our tradition and sensei means gone before the one who's gone before so and and i consider myself a spiritual friend it's just hey yeah th this this worked for me why don't you try it out you know see yeah. what happens or something yeah. like that and also to normalize the discussion like it's it's um it shouldn't be so high of a bar to be able to talk to your friends <laughs> about buddhism you know one of my one of my dreams because i find i find this stuff so fascinating and yeah, so too. exciting i mean it's like as exciting like more exciting than mo the movies get quite repetitive you know you kind of after a while like it's very much more exciting than anything and so i always said you know i'd like meditation to be something you get together with your friends and do on a friday night like it's that yeah. it's that interesting and that's fun and i think it can be but it does need some modernizing and bringing up uh, modern metaphors you know my teacher geshe nawang dakba is my like kind of root Tibetan teacher here mm -hmm. um, that I learned so much on the kind of scholarly level from, but he once, <laughs> he once gave a teaching on attachment, you know, which is like craving desire. 
And he said, you know, this feeling when you have a lot of attachment. And then he's thinking of an example. He says, you know, like, like when you see a huge hunk of butter. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I love about Tibetan teachers. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I was thinking like, oh, when you see his attractive woman or you know, whatever, this thing, <laughs> you want a, a Tesla, an yeah. iPhone. Um, so, and, and so that was actually one of the moments when I think the spark for this came because, and, and I learned everything from Geshe, like it was incredible, but I felt like I did need to translate in my mind, you know, that wasn't the thing that just made me completely lose control was, you know, a pound of butter. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to, to each his own, but I, it's a wonderful yeah. example. I yeah. mean, I totally get it from a Tibetan point of view. Butter yeah. is like a central thing for them <laughs> yeah, in yeah. Tibet. Um, um, I mean, they put butter in everything so much so that bleh. Um, but, <laughs> but um, in, in our culture, um, you know, whatever it is, may you know, a, a bag of cheese doodles or something. I don't yeah. even know what it was, but yeah, it, this is, this is really good. Um, th this is a, I didn't ask you if this is a question you would disallow, but I'm going to give it a shot. You see, okay. All these years of practice and study. Um, and, and this is a personal question and, and I'll, I'll, I'll do my part to answer my end of it too, just so I don't leave you hanging out there. Um, is there anything you're still skeptical about? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, okay. There's actually a really big one that I've really recently started to think about. I mean, I don't want to get too much into my own belief, although we can, I agree. You know, we, could, we could talk about kind of how I think about karma and something, but there is one that really fascinates me lately. And it's the idea that when you attain enlightenment, that you kind of know everything, you know, that like, there's an idea we learn, at least in our tradition, when we learn about enlightenment, it's a state where you are omniscient. Like you can know, you can be in everyone's head at once. You can perceive right. other people's feelings and emotions. You can be present to all phenomena in the universe. But that, not um, omnipotent, omniscient. Not omnipotent, though. Yeah, you don't have the power to do anything, but you have right. like the infinite knowledge and awareness and perception. So that one actually, I've come to be very skeptical about. But in a, but actually, in even a more extreme way, that there's this book I read called The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, who's a he's not a religious at all. He's a physicist, um, a genius. But in the book, he talks about infinity and the ideas of infinity from a scientific perspective. And his thesis is that there's no limit to knowledge, that knowledge itself is infinite, and that um, science is just replacing wrong theories with less wrong theories. Right. But there is never the right theory, that it's infinitely that way. And I have to say, I'm very, very attracted to this idea that that there that maybe there is no complete attainment of be of completely knowing everything forever, but that there's always growth, that there's always something more to, to learn or experience that to me is, and, and I actually really want to have this conversation with people much more knowledgeable than myself, like um, Robert Thurman and, and so on. I, I'd like to, because it's, it's something I've recently formulated after reading those books. That's probably the thing that, that I think about a lot day to day lately is just the idea because it seems a little bit too much like, you know, heaven or something, the way we talk about enlightenment. I mean, it sounds awesome if really you become com completely, you know, ever present. And as, and as 
the Dalai Lama says, you know, you don't lose your personality or anything. Everybody, right. it's not like you just merge with some universal consciousness, but he says everyone becomes enlightened in their own unique way, which, which I think is very encouraging. I think it's a little bit scary. A lot of people, if you really look, I think you ask yourself, do I want enlightenment or something like enlightenment? A lot of people say, no, like that sounds really weird. Like, I don't want to be happy all the time. Like it's, it's fun to have these ups and downs. Like how could I have ups without downs? So, so I think that idea that there's, that maybe there's something even beyond enlightenment, you know, that, that, that the thing we call enlightenment may even just be one step that there may even be further steps well, yeah, beyond I, that. Yeah. I wouldn't really call that skeptical, but I yeah. would call that more uh, curious, which is really yeah. one, I think a really big point on the path of the study of Buddhism curiosity, I know drives me and I know it drives a lot of other practitioners, you know, it, it, it drives you in your meditation practice. It drives you in your scholarly practice and your, it drives you everywhere. So I, 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 I'm going to cut you some slack on that. I don't think that's skeptical. Um, uh, but now we got to my next question is um, about, so you kind of answered it, but kind of not completely because for somebody i think we could you we could expand the definition what the heck is enlightenment yeah and obviously i don't have a direct experience but i mean i can tell you from you know from the way i've been taught and also some ways of kind of normalizing it for for um skeptics um the way the way i like to to think about it or explain it for you know ordinary non-Buddhist people is um, there's a beautiful, beautiful underpinning of Buddhism because so many people are a little bit nervous about Buddhism because it seems like we talk about suffering and death so much and think about the, suffering and death so much. The bad and we news do. of Buddhism is what I call it. The bad news of Buddhism. Yeah, right. and we do. And it's weird, right? Because why, why are these Buddhists so happy if they're <laughs> thinking about suffering and death all the time? But we're missing out on one of the key aspects of Buddhism is that we have this... Um, conviction in the fundamental goodness of our mind, right? That at the root of our mind, the deepest aspect of our mind is loving, compassionate, knowing, um, focused, generous, you know, patient, kind, all of those things. That's our natural state. And I think it's so funny how that's, they call it Buddha nature. Right. I think that's probably why it's talked about less because Buddha nature seems like a very religious term, but the idea of the natural goodness of your mind to just use a, an everyday phrase, I think that's an extremely powerful idea. And um, that's the, that's like the good news. It's sort of like the opposite of original sin, right? It's the, is this idea it is of original, the opposite. right? Yeah. Right. It's the original. So it's so different. It's actually really good to see how different Buddhism is actually from other religions and also particular secular points of view. So this is one of the places Buddhism is so different from other religions and also from the secular perspective and the psychological perspective. The psychological perspective is all we can, the best we can have is kind of a mixture of bad and good experience qualities. And, you know, that's that. Buddhism says your mind is innately um, kind, pure, generous, wise. And it's so encouraging because the delusions, the aspects of our mind that that harm us, that aren't beneficial, like um, craving, you know, addiction, uh, craving addiction, um, anger, resentment, those things, even though they seem to dominate our mind, sometimes 
if you really look at their mind, they say, you'll see that it, it's actually on the surface. It may be like a really thick crust on the surface that kind of <laughs> obscures that goodness, you know, like the crust on a planet or something, but still it's there. And that's the beauty of meditation is with meditation, you can, you, especially with deep meditation, you can get lose those things and you just see it's there all the time. It's actually there for you to access at any time you want. If you actually just sit down and, and go there, you can find that part of yourself. And of course, you know, you pop out of it when you pop out of meditation, like that's the difference between, um, you know, and the enlightenment and not enlightenment. But anyway, this is a kind of a long answer to what is enlightenment, but that's the seed of enlightenment is the idea that your fundamental nature is good. And also that the mind is changeable. And so through meditation, through, you know, study reflection, and then especially meditation, um, gradually you can um, just let go of those disturbing qualities. And they say just your good, your good qualities just naturally shine through. So the idea of enlightenment is that um, those good qualities are perfectible, that it's actually possible to become always kind, compassionate, loving, wise, generous, patient, feel connected to others, um, make your life meaningful and find joy in, in everyday experience. Um, that, and, but full stop, you know, without, without ever dipping out of it, that's enlightenment from, I think, a more kind of colloquial perspective. And then there are these like super normal aspects to enlightenment they talk about, but I, I don't think that's necessary. Ne necessary. It's enough to say that you could be happy, <laughs> kind, wise all the time without saying you could read everyone's mind and, and like go someplace just by thinking about it. You know, I, I don't, not sure those other parts are very important to um, the modern, <laughs> the modern mind. No. And, you know, just like you said, it's, just, it's, it's, it's enough to think that, you know, we, our obscurations are gone. Or, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't have these clashes or these, these poisons anymore, or, or we're, or we're not hanging on to them. Um, I, I've also been taught that they're always there. Um, and, he, and even if a, a someone is enlightened, um, they can, they, they, they could, they can be aware of them, but they're not living in them. And that's mm -hmm. sort of the nature of how I was taught. But um, the interesting thing I think is like you said, um, we don't have to go to the supernatural places to understand what enlightenment may be. We can get, I, be, I believe we can, and this is just my belief in, you know, all, all ignorance is mine here is, is um, we get glimpses of enlightenment. Like you say, when you meditate, you can get glimpses of how that might feel um, uh, by being in that state where you're in touch with your pure mind. Um, I, cause I don't think it's impossible to be in touch with your pure mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. You, I mean, you, you are aware of it in, in meditation, but I, you know, the one thing that I, I find that a lot of people in talking to people that they, they get a little, I, I'm going to use the word irritated about, you know, this sounds all so wonderful and warm and happy and, and, and oh, you just sit down and meditate and you're going to get a glimpse of the nature of the pure <laughs> nature of your mind and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, it doesn't come without a little work. Um, yeah. um, and, you know, this is going to lead me to another sort of long question for you to think about. Um, well, you know, bef what, before, before that though, I wouldn't mind following up on what you're saying though, because that one more thing about enlightenment, because I've heard his holiness, the Dalai Lama say this, and 
is the power of ideals, right? Because I, mm. you can look at an enlightenment as an ideal, right? Then enlightenment is the, the ideal that you could perfect yourself. So, because I heard people ask the Dalai Lama the same question sometimes, and he compared it to world peace. He said, he said, yes, well, yes. will you have the, many of you, in fact, maybe almost everyone in this hall today would believe in the ideal of world peace, but do any of you really think it's possible to achieve world peace? Raise your hand if it's possible. Nobody, right? So why do you believe in that? And he says, the reason you believe in an ideal like world peace is because if you have that ideal as a driving principle of your life, then you are going to get as far as possible as you can towards that ideal, even if the end of the line isn't possible to reach. Whereas if you have a much smaller goal for your life, you'll, <laughs> you won't get as far. So that is one reason to, to have the idea, even if you don't necessarily believe in an enlightenment, just the believing in the ideal of enlightenment, like pointing your life at like a vector towards that ideal that I want to become the most loving, compassionate, kind, wise, you know, connected person I could possibly be. And so that's my goal. And I'll get as far as I can towards it, you know. Well, this. that's, yeah, that's like the Bodhisattva ideal. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, the Bodhisattva ideal, the wish for enlightenment for all beings, you know, mm. you know, there. Uh, my goal as a Bodhisattva, mm. if you've taken the Bodhisattva vows, you know, mm. I'll bring all, uh, all people to enlightenment, um, all beings to enlightenment. Um, and, and everybody always says, well, that's it. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. not going to do that. And, and, and then sort of, there's sort of a, a little internal Buddhist joke about that, that of course is impossible. Yeah. Um, yeah. From our perspective at this point in time, it, it, it is impossible. And then when you study the Prajna Paramita Sutras, especially the Diamond Sutra, it says when you bring all beings to enlightenment and once you get there, you find out that there are no beings. Well, the mm. concept here is that your mind has been purified to the point that you don't see them as separate beings. And so mm. therefore you have just brought all beings to enlightenment. Um, yeah. So that's, but ideals are important. And I like the Dalai Lama's um, attitude there because, you know, you, you do need to strive for something. It's so easy to be a cynic and not a skeptic, especially yeah. in today's, world i think it's 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 absolutely i give anybody a lot of credit to stay not cynical <laughs> in yeah. the way things are going right now but there is also the reason to practice more and or to to start on a path of an ideal yeah. um but yeah I, I love what you just said there yeah. And and I had something I was going to say. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> I interrupted your. your I know, and I'm trying. I'm trying to remember what it was, mm -hmm. and I I'm lost here. I can't remember. But so we'll go on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, do you think there are any other paths other than Buddhism that can bring? Okay, I guess this. I guess the the lead on this is Robert Wright. Right when he says is that Buddhism is true? Mm. <laughs> um, well, okay. So I, I want to, uh, let me answer that question in a couple of different ways. So a, a quote I recently um, heard in an interview I gave to um, Geshe Tenzin Namdak, who's the resident teacher at the Jamyang Center in London, um, is I, I was asking him about, you know, secular forms of Buddhism. And he said, Buddhism isn't meant to make more Buddhists, <laughs> but to generate <laughs> happy minds. So I think that that's 
kind of the, oh, there's also another great quote um, by uh, Zongsar Kensei Rinpoche, who says, if you still define yourself as a Buddhist, you're not yet nah. a Buddha. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, he, he wrote this book about us, you know, um, what makes you not a Buddhist. Buddhist. So I just love that. I, there are very few traditions that kind of negate themselves like that and say, <laughs> you know, this is just a path. Like if you still think you're a Buddhist, you're definitely not a Buddha. So, um, and obviously, you know, from the Buddhist perspective, you'd say, you know, the Buddhas manifest themselves as um, saints and, and, and so on. Like, it's not a, it, the word's not important. Like, it's, it's a way of seeing reality and seeing other people. So if you look at the, the behavior and the activities of certain other people in life, um, in history, like Gandhi and, and um, Martin Luther King Jr. and um, the founders of Doctors Without orders and my my brother's wife you know like all kind of people you know who just manifest great qualities and and they're not buddhist i i, I often say like the most buddhist people i know aren't buddhist, buddhist. A lot of, right you know, right right demonstrate those qualities so i absolutely think you know every spiritual tradition you'll find people who you could we would probably say from a buddhist perspective are a bodhisattva uh, or maybe even an enlightened being, uh, certainly a person who is living a, a happy, meaningful, effective life. Uh, so I think all spiritual traditions offer that. There was that good, great book, um, oh, The World's Religions, um, you know, the famous textbook where whenever you, when you study religious, um, religious studies. Um, but in there, it talks about all the best qualities of every religion. It's a really nice book. Uh, it's not a it's not a kind of popular point of view right now. Even right. As, with myself, I actually tend to look at a lot of the drawbacks of of religions. Religion. There's a lot of negative aspects. But if you really look at the effect, if you look at individual practitioners or in our current pope, I think it's a great example of a very compassionate, effective person in the world. Um, yeah, there's many many other paths have the same effect on your mind. I think, but you know, there are differences. There are very specific differences, especially. Exactly. In, in the view of reality and God, you know, of course, there's no, there's no God in Buddhism. Um, and the way the, the view of the interdependent nature, reality and emptiness is very much unique to the Buddhist view that it doesn't really exist in, in most other traditions. So the way I understand them. Yeah. And I, I'll interrupt here. I, I, I like to always interrupt when someone says there's no God in Buddhism. Um, yeah. Um, cause it does, it can cause people some great distress because there's a sure. lot of people who believe God, believe in God and come to Buddhism, uh, and practice Buddhism. And, and I think that's perfectly fine. And, and they're, what they're doing is practicing Dharma and, and, you know, they're really, uh, there, there was never Buddhism to begin with. There's Dharma and, and the yeah. practice of the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. And, and, you know, if you go back to the original, uh, teachings of the Buddha, he never said there was no God. He said he refused to answer the question because it was not expeditious. I think is- that's very, I think that's very, very wise answer actually. Um, and when I, some of the teachers I really, really respect, they like directly equate the experience of God for Christian and for other religions with specific experiences we have in Buddhism, like they're identical. You know, right, they're just words right. for the same thing. So, so yeah, I apologize for that. It's, it's more like, the, oh, I, I didn't want, I didn't, I'm not jumping on you. I just, I'm thinking yeah. of the audience and I'm thinking of uh, your audience might be a little different than my audience and my audience is, 
is a smattering of people all across and some are skeptics, some aren't skeptics and, and some have had, had, you know, like I said, spiritual wounds, but they still have a deep sense of wanting to believe something, you know, and, and, and I, you, I think you can hang on. Um, One of the first questions I got in teaching a class on Buddhism was that very question. Can I be a Buddhist and still believe in God? And I said, well, of course. Yeah. And well, and if you're in Vajrayana Buddhism too, you know, the Tibetan type of Buddhism, like it's effectively, it's like believing in gods, you know, the way you look at all these deities. I mean, they're called deities and they're called deities. Yeah. So you pretty much do believe in, in various types of like quote gods, gods and, and, you know, and, and also, you know, it's just, I, I, I think, you know, the Buddha was the the, the supreme teacher. He never, he, he answered that question perfectly. It was, It really wasn't relevant. Now, I remember the thing I was going to talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yay for me remembering anything. Um, It uh, it, it was, you know, we talked about meditation. Mm -hmm. And I also talked about, you know, um, it sounds so easy to be, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm aware of the pure nature of mind. I'm going to sit and meditate and then I'm going to be aware of the pure nature of mind. And, And, you know, of course, that's it does take some work. Um, and one of the things that I worry so much about, and I would like to kind of kick this around with you is, um, I know you talk about mindfulness on your, uh, on your podcast. Um, and I know, you know, there's, there was a, 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 the book mindfulness and, you know, and I, and, and, and I've been worried about this even prior to the book came out of mindfulness is that um, mindfulness has become uh, a tool for, uh, for the, and I, I'm not trying to be political here, the, the capitalist consumer society um, as a, as a development technique to make, you know, their workers more productive and this and that. And, um, and actually there's so many people I run into who think Buddhism, they think that there's this mindfulness thing. And then they think that Buddhism is this mindfulness thing and all this other stuff, uh, the the riches of Buddhism just gone because the ubiquitous of of the uh, mindfulness has just, uh, dissipated and dissolved anything that that I think is 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 real true and important about Buddhism what what yeah. thoughts well we could talk for a very long time about this and and obviously <laughs> it's it's puzzled me a little bit because you know Tibetan Buddhism is very very precise right. so the word mindfulness is a very specific thing that kind of fits together with a hundred other things. Right. And it's a, it's, it's not, not forgetting, you know, so in our tradition, mindfulness, the way it's translated is not forgetting. And it's the ability of your mind to just stay with the object. So it's a very important aspect of meditation, but it's not necessarily um, virtuous on its own (laughs) because um, for, and this is something really important is that meditation isn't necessarily um, going to make you a better person. Like you have to have a certain motivation with your yeah. meditation. So the example I often use, I like to make things kind of funny 
is that if you've ever seen the empire strikes back which is my favorite star wars movie darth vader is meditating throughout that whole movie like right. whenever he's not like killing somebody he's meditating <laughs> and that makes him better at killing people but the thing is it's not just fiction right the the u.s military they use meditation for some good things actually treating ptsd they also use quote mindfulness to train soldiers so that they will pull the trigger and not, not be shaking and freaking out about killing another person. They train them with the specific mindfulness practices to kill people. Right. So it's really important to realize that like mindfulness on its own, it won't lead you to a virtuous state of mind. Like it could lead you anywhere because it teaches you how to focus. Um, of course, there is extremely, I think the people who teach mindfulness don't, <laughs> they mean it to be beneficial. And um the Buddha did teach this uh, four foundations of mindfulness. You know, it, it has, it is also a specific practice of meditation that very, very beautiful. So at its best, the mindfulness is becoming um, aware of everything you do <laughs> um, so that you just, so that you you stop acting automatically. So that's very, very powerful, right? You become aware. You also become in the present. So you're, you're not worrying about the past. You're not planning for the future. So these are the, the benefits of like a healthy mindfulness. But yeah, I'm, I'm been very, very concerned. It's actually a big reason why I started the podcast was just to put another voice out there about the bigger world of Buddhism and other forms of meditation and analytical meditation and the importance of your motivation and, and a vector and a, and a structured way of thinking that because to put it more simply, you could say mindfulness could help you focus, you know, your mind, but then you have to decide where to steer it. And then right, that's the benefit right. of analytical meditation is that once you have some, some self-awareness and some ability to focus and be in the present, that's great, but it's actually not enough to develop yourself as a human being. Then you have to decide, ah, I want to steer myself towards kindness, love, generosity, wisdom, patience, because you can use mindfulness just as a therapy which is right. fine actually. So people will use it to um, uh, deal with sleeplessness or to deal with uh, a lack of focus, or as you said, to be more focused at work. And, you know, I saw that in myself too, actually, as I was meditating that sometimes I would use my meditation practice more as a kind of crutch so that I could deal with a lot of the annoying things and things I didn't like, or even ethical things I disagreed with to push it down and just like compartmentalize the meditation then go be focused and, and work hard, you know, at my job. And I think that is, that is not the point. So, so I think, yes, meditation does work as a therapy. Um, it'll help, you know, with um, sleeplessness, with um, focus anxiety. and so on, anxiety, yeah. but that's like, it's like 1% of the benefit of benefit meditation, because the point of meditation is to bring out your best qualities and to um, make your life meaningful and um, make every moment joyful you know, which may sound cheesy to some people, but it's, it is possible. I see it in the, my teachers and I, and I feel it in myself a lot of the time, you know, very much because of the meditation practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, um, and that's why I guess what, that's what I get at, what I'm getting at when I say that is like there it's yes, the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness and yes, we, we teach about mindfulness and, 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 and being, uh, being concentrated, uh, uh, more concentrated, more focused. Um, but at the same time is like, if we don't have intention, right. Um, uh, or a certain attitude that precedes it, yeah. then that's why I, I, I always, one of my things that I harp on the most is 
is like, you know, following someone or some path that gives you, um, that, that, that provides you with the, the motivation or the intention or, 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 the, or the proper alignment, like you said, steering towards the vector, right? The proper alignment to use all these tools. I mean, there is a, a ton of tools in, in the Buddhist toolbox. Um, some can be used like we talked about well, and some can be used improperly, but the key is intention. Right. It's it's the old thing. You know, if you if you you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. And if, yeah. if it, it, you you need to focus on what is it I'm trying to do? You know, there's this uh, um, this uh, this trend within um, it, within professional development about, you know, uh, and I'm not, I forget the fellow's name who wrote the book right now. But what is your why? Um, and, mm. and it was one of my po- earliest podcast episodes, because I think it's so important. A lot of people may want to be Buddhist, study Buddhism, duh, 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 but um, really, it, you need to really investigate, analyze, which you may not all have the tools to do yet, but um, what is, what is your why? Why do you want to do it? You know, what, what is your why? And it's your why it's, it's having the proper intention and the proper attitude um, that, that, that will guide you in the right direction and not to sound all wooey zooey supernatural, but in, from my experience, it's having that will align you with the teachers you need, whether yeah. they whether they be your cousin or the person down the street or an actual Buddhist teacher. Um, and I, I really think that it's, it's happened in my life and, and I've taken notice. Um, but you know, I'm, you can, you can call it supernatural or you can call it just, well, gee, if I'm focused so much on this, then, then I'm seeing it it's sort of like, well, gee, I just got a new Mazda and I've never seen that kind of Mazda before. But once you get it, then you see a million of those Mazdas on the road, right? It's like, so it could just be that and not supernatural at all. It just could be if my mind set on that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the, you know, in particular Mahayana Buddhism, the motivation is so critical. And, and I mean, that's in one sense, it's, it's like 30 seconds at the beginning of your meditation session is what could transform it from being something neutral or even harmful to something beneficial. <clears throat> Why am I meditating? I'm meditating to bring out my best qualities to be the best, you know, father, daughter, mother, son, coworker, colleague, you know, brother, sister, um, to everybody, stranger, to everyone I encounter. Like with that coloring your mind, then the meditation session, then everything is colored with that that motivation. And it's wonderful because this is kind of a shortcut for doing anything. Um, it's nice because in you know Buddhist centers and stuff, you'll often begin any meeting. And even if you work in the meeting, you start with 30 second motivation. Like, okay, why are we having this meeting? To benefit other people, to, to do good with our center. And it's easy to forget that and just to dive into work, 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 work. And so I found it's a really good um, cheat for various types of activity and like, like before I used to give a lot of talks. Well, I still do sometimes, you know, outside of Buddhism, my regular career. 
And um, once I discovered Buddhism, I found it was an easier way to prepare for a talk <laughs> than because there's so much ego involved in like giving a oh, lecture yeah. or something like that. And I before I would kind of be worried looking over my notes and thinking about this. <laughs> but I realized like the problem was that it was about me. I was worried about my reputation, how I would come off. And then once I got into Buddhism, I said, oh, that's so much easier to prepare for the talk because you just sit, especially as you're waiting to do the talk, you think, oh, may this talk be a benefit to people. You know, that's the whole reason for doing it. Uh, I hope this will be a benefit to people. I mean, of course, you still may need to do some other preparation, but especially right before, like the instant before you do it, to think that. Um, and then also it is this antidote to things like anxiety. But to think of that only as an antidote to being anxious on stage is right. so silly. Like that's that's like one one thousandth of the benefit. The real benefit is it actually makes what you're doing more beneficial. And is like this is the proof in the pudding of, of what we know about Buddhist teachings is that, um, you know, as, as like in the Bodhisattva trainings, you know, um, all, you know, all cause of suffering is, is thinking about what I want and, and yeah. all causes of happiness is thinking about somebody, what else someone else wants. And, and I've noticed is, is, uh, you know, not, not that I, I always do this and, and not that I don't have profound major ego moments, but um, is, is, is when I do set my intention, set my attitude, um, the ego really kind of does go away. Not yeah, sort of or fades backwards or something. And then everything seems so effortless. I remember the yeah. first few podcasts I did, you know, it was very nerve wracking. I hadn't done it before. And, you know, I had all these scripts and you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, it was all about my writing and, and uh, I, I remember my brother asking, who's not a, who's a, I would call him a, a rationalist cynic, if you will, but he was always interested in my, be, me going into doing some podcasting because he thought it would be a good thing for me. But he, I remember he said, how in the world are you going to come up with all those subjects? And I said, yeah, I don't know. Let's just see what happens. And it's like, when you set your intention. Like when I, and then once I, I gave my podcast sort of a way, kind of like an offering, when I gave my podcast up as an offering, sort of like, um, sort of like, uh, uh, you know, Tonglin or something, when I gave it as an offering, um, it, it was, it never became a sweat, really. It never became like a, a, job to do it. And, and as you now know, when I have a guest on, I don't prepare questions. I don't, I, I just said, let's talk because I figure if I have a guest, they're going to be able to talk about the same things I'm going to be when we have the right intention. So yeah, I think your point is so well taken about that is that it, it, uh, you can't help but go in the right direction, right? If your intention is that way pure yeah yeah and you know you can it, it's outside of buddhism anyone who's effective at anything in life you know they they set that intent you know they're committed and usually with a positive motivation you know? usually <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. most people they want to do good in the world right like there's not really even the people we see doing like evil in the world most of them think they're doing good most of them are super committed and they think what they're doing is like the best thing in the world for the planet and for civilization. So like, we're all trying. It's just, we have different opinions oh, exactly. <laughs> about, about what it is. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's so true that people who, who, 
who we look out at and, and, and who cause us anger or fear or whatever on the, in this divisive world of ours. Uh, and, and then if we remember to acknowledge the fact that they really believe that this is a good thing, it does change how you, you reflect on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask one more question because I think we're getting too close mm-hmm. to the hour. Um, and I don't want to take any more of your time. But, oh, I love this. This is great. Oh, um, great. Um, what do you, you know, two th- actually, these are two questions. Um, what do you think is the most important thing we as podcasters, um, Buddhist podcasters have to offer? I mean, I know you have your niche and I have my niche, which isn't too far removed from your niche. Mine's more everyday. Yours is more the skeptical, uh, rational thing. What what do you think we have to offer and what do you think we should be doing more of? And Mm. and I I know I'm putting you on the spot here because I actually just thought of this this morning myself. So I don't know. Oh, it's a great question. Let me think about it. Um, I think so. What I love about podcasts, I actually didn't seven years ago, I didn't say I want to start a podcast. I actually analyzed (laughs) different ways. Like, should it be a blog podcast course, you know, and so on. Um, But what I love about a podcast is that it's, you're right. Someone's right in your head. I mean, you really have a very, very deep experience with um, the person's ideas who you're relating to. So I think it's, and also it's very personal. You have the specific voice and person's voice and personality. So I think, um, but I've always, cause I always, you know, I was an artist, I'm an artist and I talk a lot. So I always really like this idea of respecting people's time and really um, offering people a lot. It doesn't necessarily mean a lot of content, but, but a lot of value that right. really offer people something that's going to be of benefit. I think being like entertaining and interesting is also really important, you know, like I agree. Using, using the talents of storytelling and, and emotion um, to convey stories, um, and finding that right. Also no avoiding jargon whenever we can. Yeah. I try really hard for that. Um, it's, it's not always possible and, and there's benefits to jargon too. They do mean precise things, but I think understanding where your audience is coming from and trying to deliver information using ordinary words or, or, or at the very least explain them in ordinary words, um, I think is very powerful. Um, but you know, it is a nice medium, to deliver even kind of meditative, you know, about half of our episodes are meditations. Like that was really important to me because, you know, we learned that you can study and reflect as much as you want, but meditation is the thing that is the vast, has the, has the biggest impact on your mind. You, you actually really don't train your mind very much unless you do some meditation. So maybe that's what I would say, especially for Buddhist podcasters is just make sure there's an element of meditation um, it doesn't necessarily even have to begin with a gong or something like that, but you can pull people into a meditative state. You know, you can go from a discussion into a meditation by the rhythm of your voice and the, and the way that you invite people to think, um, especially asking people questions like, you know, think for yourself a time that, um, like, like this question of does, um, am I happier when I'm pursuing my self-interest or when I'm benefiting others? that's an invitation, right? That's not an assertion. That's an invitation. Think for yourself. Like right now, people listening to this podcast, think for yourself right now. Think of one of the most 
hap- one of the most positive kind of selfish experiences you had of like something coming to you and ex- uh, experience winning something, a sensual experience, uh, something you ate, who knows? And think how great that was. And then think of your greatest experience benefiting others when you really help somebody like and weigh those, which, which one does one seem like it was stronger in some way that it had a, a, a more powerful impact that it was a deeper lasting um, type of happiness than the other. Like, I think that's the, the, the thing with meditation. I think the more and more that we can, as Buddhists, the more that we can invite people to questioning for themselves and going through these exercises themselves, um, the better rather than any kind of assertions about, you know, about what, what thing. The yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. And what you just did was an analytical meditation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and I don't do meditations like you do like mm. specific, okay, this is a meditation podcast yeah, episode, yeah. but um, since it's focused on every day, I, I always position a teaching with an everyday lesson, which is getting some, to think for themselves. And I think that's really important because uh, yeah. it's so easy to take these concepts. And if we can't, we can't put it in a, like, a, like an everyday thing. And I always use myself as an example, usually a negative example, mm. but I always use myself <laughs> as an example. Um, and then that helps them kind of situate yeah. themselves in, gee, I don't know, how would I respond to that? Yeah, how, yeah. how did I respond to that? You know? Yeah. And, you know, the purpose of meditation is to, is to give you these tools when you're in your everyday life encountering people, right? So Thich Nhat Hanh is the ultimate master in that because right. his books are never really are talking about meditation. And yet they give you these tools that are effectively meditations. Like, so, so for example, he has in his pieces, every step, you know, this beautiful two paragraph teaching on, on understanding. I think it's, it's against blame. It's sort of like about not blaming people, but he's saying when you're, when you're facing somebody, um, do your best to understand them. You know, he says, you don't blame the lettuce for wilting, right. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, you go and look and see, oh, does it need water, less sun, more sun. And so like that idea, like as you're, as you're faced with challenges in life, like as you're faced with like you know, your, your wife being angry at you or your boss or some other conflict um, to try to turn on engage, turn on understanding and turn right. off kind of blame or even analysis and, and debate, but just understanding what's going on for that person. You know, not for me, what's going on for them? What do they need? Why are they feeling this? Um, and ask them questions or just reflect like, oh, wow, you're really angry right now or you're really frustrated, upset. Um, though that's, those are the everyday kind of tips that are even more powerful than something on the cushion, um, because you can apply it in everyday life. But, you know, typically they say in order to be able to do that, um, you need to develop certain mental qualities on the cushion. So you have like the mindfulness, the awareness, so you remember to do it in everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and one last question before we go, um, You think that we, we, we referred to this a couple of times, the, the divisiveness in our world. Do you think that this situation in our world, which doesn't seem to be abating in any kind of way, and, and I think the, pan, the global pandemic only makes it worse, um, do you think that is, is more conducive to practice or less conducive to practice. I have been trying to be an, and I'm asking this question because I have been trying so hard to be an optimist about Mm. all of this and that, that our, 
that that if people practiced it really would be better and um and but i I, i'm not seeing i'm seeing so much you know cynicism and frustration and a giving up Mm. and a escapism um compared to what i thought that i saw 20 30 years ago in the urge to take up a spiritual practice what are your thoughts about that make me feel better yeah (laughs) i mean i would not have any kind of absolute statements on um you know you know if you look at i mean the thing is that the the world might have seemed better to us 20 or 30 years ago i mean okay so so you and i are both like white people too by the way like there's a good point to bring up that point (laughs) good but like but like the world's actually a lot better for a more diverse group of people now like that's the thing so much was so much was hidden and buried like the life experience for a black person in america still sucks but it's better than it was 30 a little bit better than it was 30 years ago and a lot of it is because it's all out on the surface now actually like yeah we are we're seeing a lot more because of cell phones and because of political activism and just the difference in the way we're we're looking at reality so like it looks a lot worse they actually say this about your buddhist practice is that it actually can kind of seem like you're getting worse (laughs) but you're not you're just more aware aware so i so i actually do actually do think overall things actually are getting and there, there's certain scientific sources too i, I don't even want to people get mad at, there's so many people are triggering you now like steven pinker wrote this great book called um the better angels of our nature mm-hmm. that and there are good reasons to be critical of him for certain of these you know biases that he's exhibited himself but still the scholarship of his book is excellent and it's about um how the world has materially gotten better for people you know that there's less violence um, there's more understanding, there's more political empowerment. There is a little bit less racism, believe it or not. And I, again, it, this is not something to be proud of because it's still like really bad, um, but a little bit less, a, a little bit less. So, so I think, I actually think it's just that things are more, it's nice that they're getting attention because 30 years ago, right. Know, and I hate to say it really graphically, but like black people were getting shot at the roadside and it was not news. It you was know, not it was, news, right it, right? it didn't even make any headline anywhere. So, I mean, it's it's sort of a sad progress that now that at least makes news, and but it's still happening. Um, but I hope that's on a vector towards happening less and and a more enlightened society. So, so I do think it's a little bit more just awareness. Still, we could use more sources of information that were kind of balanced and, and and talked about people's good qualities and how we can bring out our own best qualities and all the incredible things that happen in the world. Like somehow our media is a bit is biased towards negativity for many good reasons. Like the media is, a, is kind of like a branch of the government that keeps it in check. So it's like constant criticism and it's really good on a certain level. Um, but we need other sources. And, and I think each of us has to choose for ourselves. Like I love the New York Times, you know, I actually read it, but it, it's quite a negative view on reality for the most part. And, um, you know, I have to balance out my mind or I have to change, look at, change the way I look at those when I read those articles to add to it that compassion of, as I'm reading about, even like a political leader, I hate thinking, oh, you know, they think they're trying to do well and they're also, they may be kind of miserable in their life and, and so on. And I wish they would be happy. I actually wish they would be happy and relaxed because they'd probably stop doing all these awful things, you know, <laughs> to everybody else. Right. So that's, 
that yeah. you don't get that in in a in a New York Times article. No, they they don't no. say like, oh, you know, may Donald Trump have uh, happiness <laughs> and its causes. You know, they're they're very very critical. Or Joe Biden, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think that putting that spin, like that spin of of, I read this beautiful interview with Richard Gere. That's actually an old interview with him, and he said like that's what really transformed his life when he started to take every person he was faced with face to face and and on TV too, and just say, I want you to be happy. I wish you to be happy. Like, how does that change your mind and how you relate to every person is after you're looking through, through a screen or in real life, if you have that motivation, like, I want this person to be happy, even if they're enemy, my enemy, even if I didn't vote for them, I want them to be happy. And what is that path towards happiness? It doesn't mean I don't fight you know, tooth and nail against everything that they are doing that I don't believe in, but still to believe in their fundamental humanity. I, I do think that is a little bit what we're missing more today than 30 years ago. Like, I do think there was a little more of that belief of everyone's, again, not necessarily, you know, people who are bad bias against them, but on the surface, there was like a politeness that, that is missing. And, and it was not, it was a little bit fake, you know, again, because of all the different you know, racial and ethnic and gender groups that weren't um, benefiting from that politeness. <laughs> um, but I think we could use a little bit more politeness, kindness, um, generosity. It was, it was a little bit fake, but in 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 like doing the practice uh, in doing uh, Tonglen or or which is giving and taking. It's like mm. doing what you say, wishing everybody to be happy, or just meta meta practices, wishing everybody to be happy, and then Tonglen is taking people's suffering and giving them happiness as yeah. an offering. But the, the 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 thing is 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 even if if it was fake, like. 30, 40, 50 years ago, or, you know, when I was a kid in the fifties and sixties, you know, the leave yeah. with the beaver lifestyle, you know, <laughs> uh, um, it's, it's like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it was fake, but you know, if you fake it enough, it, it becomes kind of real after a yeah. while. It's, it's so, so yeah, I, I think, uh, a, a little more politeness. And if you do try to see, you know, wish people to be happy. I do think it makes a big difference in, in my experience. Yeah. So yeah. that was a wonderful way to answer my last question. And, yeah. and do you have something else you'd like to say, Scott? Oh, no, but, you know, I think also, you know, to respect the people that are, that are quite vociferous too. Like, I, I think, especially in today's culture, you know, to respect, you know, strong voices and, people advocating for change in, you know, seemingly aggressive ways. I think that's also really, really important. Um, it's kind of, this is sort of nice to touch on this topic because I think it, it's actually one of the bigger issues in Buddhism is, you know, even looking at biases within Buddhism, which is a little bit for, has yeah. traditionally been more for kind of wealthy people and whiter people traditionally. So that's always, it's, you can't get into that at our, as our last topic here. It's too big, but no, that uh, may, probably may with another guest. <laughs> maybe another time but yeah, yeah def definitely it is a, that's a huge topic and and uh, uh i i think it's only scratching the surface even today yeah. uh in, yeah. in in that area it's yeah. you know it's like you can't even go to retreats unless you have thousands of dollars right i mean yeah. so that pretty much uh, eliminates uh, the vast majority of the population yeah um, so but but, you know, to end on a really positive note, I think just just the benefits of these types of thought patterns and, you know, meditation practices, it, it's just extraordinary. And I think that that invitation to people um, to, tr to try them with with some skepticism, com some combination of skepticism and openness, I think 
you know, I've heard that said like Buddhism is more an invitation than anything else. So I think, so I think looking into that, that invitation, you know, as, as kind of last words in the interview to look at, look at these ways of thinking and meditating as an invitation for yourself to try out, you know, because you're willing to go see the Avengers or like an awful movie (laughs) about a serial killer, right? You're willing to go watch a two hour movie about a serial killer. Right. Um, So why not spend, you know, two hours studying Buddhism or, or meditating or so on and treat it as a fiction, treat it just like a movie. Say it's all fake. It's all made up, but it has an effect on your mind. You know, watching a movie, it affects your mind for the rest of your life. It creates neural pathways and certain beliefs and ways of seeing things. So see how this movie plays out in your mind, even treat it as a fiction, but treat it seriously and and pay attention to it and see the effect it has on your mind afterwards. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to leave this. Um, and, and I invite all my listeners, um, who have never heard of Scott Snibby, like I never heard of Scott Snibby and who hadn't run across the podcast, a skeptic's path to enlightenment. You now see how he can teach. You now see his way of thinking, which is a wonderful way. And he has really great guests on. And so, um, I invite you all to, to, to run to your app right now and, uh, Hit subscribe. Uh, I'm sure you'll like it. And if you don't, you know, talk to him, not to me. Um, <laughs> so, Scott, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. And, gee, maybe we can do it again because I do love talking to you. So thanks again. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. A really you're a fantastic person to speak with. I, I love this. <laughs> Th- thank you, Scott. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Scott. Um, I will post a link to Scott's website where you can listen to his latest episodes, link to his podcast to subscribe via your preferred podcast app, uh, read blog posts and more. And don't forget that you can join me and others in the private donation supported everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha is currently studying and practicing the 37 practices of bodhisattvas. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, and education series a private Facebook group, and soon we will be launching an Introduction to Buddhism course as another added benefit of the membership community. Look for announcement about that in the coming weeks. To join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha, you can go to my website, www.everyday-buddhism.com, and look for the tab, Join Membership Community or Everyday Sangha, and do what it asks you to do related to the community you'd like to join. If you have any questions, you feel free to contact me um, via the contact tab on my website. But I look forward to having you join us in the membership community or the Everyday Sangha. And until then, that's it for this episode. And until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. <laughs>